Well, I had the privilege this week to go hiking in the, the mountains with my friend Andy, and we made it, I think, 70, 75 kilometers along uh, the way through the mountains, lugging a big canoe and some packs and uh, feeling our age. At least I was, Andy was very, he was swift, and I was feeling my age, I think, a little bit on the trip. But we had one day where we wanted to keep going, but we finally said, you know, we need to stop. And common sense and the better part of wisdom said, if we want to make the rest of this trip, we better stop now. And as we read the book of Proverbs, there's a lot of wisdom that is simply common sense. Uh, it's simply uh, stuff that you don't have to be a Christian to kind of have the horse sense to know this or that. And we read Proverbs, and uh, we find a lot of wisdom like that. And it's led some to actually think, is Proverbs merely a book of secular wisdom? And I'll explain a little bit more why people have said that. But Proverbs is a, is a mysterious book. It's an enigmatic book. It's a bit of a riddle, actually, when you study it in, in depth. We're going to find um, sayings that you also find in Egypt. We're going to find kind of common things that were circulating around the ancient Near Eastern world. And as we read Proverbs, there's very little mention of God. And there's no mention of uh, God's covenant with Israel or his redemptive acts for them. And so some have concluded that Proverbs is merely a book of secular wisdom, kind of slogan stuff that anybody can throw around. But a deeper look at Proverbs will show that it is a profoundly religious book. A profoundly religious book. And I hope that you see it today in a light that you have not seen it before. I'm going to argue today that Proverbs shows the way of wisdom for sons of the covenant. Proverbs shows the way of wisdom for sons of the covenant. Now, of course, it applies to women too, but Proverbs is going to be addressed to sons. There's going to be a lot of talk to sons. And the idea in the ancient Near Eastern world is that you became a son of wisdom, a student of, of wise thinking. Okay, so it is addressed to sons, but I will argue, and hopefully you will see it, that it is addressed to sons of the covenant. And that is where the way of wisdom lies. Proverbs is going to show us that there's a way of life and there is a way of death. There's only two paths, one that leads to life and one that leads to death. It's also going to show us that common grace wisdom is insufficient without the fear of the Lord. That you can have all of the wisdom in the world and still fail if you do not have the fear of the Lord as the foundation. So we are going to look at Proverbs in two parts this morning for the sermon. First, we're going to look at it as a collection of practical wisdom for daily life. And then secondly, we'll look at the deeper teaching of Proverbs that to be truly wise, you must be a son of the covenant, must be a child of, of God. If you look on page 7 of your worship folder, I've given a summary here that I'll read quickly. Um, the book of Proverbs is enigmatic. It is filled with riddles. And the book itself is a puzzle. Proverbs gives little mention of God and no mention of the covenant 
or God's great redemptive acts? Does this mean that Proverbs is merely a collection of secular wisdom? By no means. A deeper look reveals that Proverbs is a profoundly religious book. Proverbs shows that the way of wisdom is for sons of the covenant. Only those who trust in Yahweh and follow his ways are genuinely sons of wisdom. Proverbs indicates that there is a way of life and death. Common grace wisdom is insufficient without the fear of the Lord. And the New Testament continues this call to wisdom in the life of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to be truly wise, you must be a child of God through faith in Christ. The path of wisdom and life is found only in him. So there's a good summary of the message. Now the literary structure, I, there's a typo. I copied and pasted the summary again. So I know some of you are keeping these worship folders with the summary so I can print you uh, a correct one. But maybe it's in God's providence that uh, the literary, I didn't get the right literary structure in there because it gives a surprise for the ending that you would otherwise kind of know at the beginning. So I can send you a correction uh, tomorrow or this, this week, but I apologize for the typo. Uh, in the the structure there. You will see in that brief outline that there's two parts. There's the way of wisdom commended to a son of wisdom and that there's then a collection of practical wisdom. And we're going to look at Proverbs backwards today. We're going to start with the second part and then move back to the first part at the end. So we're going to look first at this collection of practical wisdom. So let's dive into the book of Proverbs. So in this first point, I'm arguing that Proverbs is a collection of practical wisdom for daily life. And in that way, anybody, whether you're a Christian or not, can be greatly benefited by reading the Proverbs and learning from them. There's a lot of very practical things to say. Um, In fact, we even see that it this wisdom is really for anyone by the collection of Proverbs itself. Proverbs indicates a number of different sources for the book of Proverbs. Solomon is mentioned at the beginning as the chief writer of the Proverbs. And we have two great collections of Solomon's Proverbs in the book. So starting in chapter 10, going all the way to chapter 22, we are told that these are the Proverbs of Solomon. And then there are further sayings uh, of Solomon later on in the book. In chapter 25, we are told that Hezekiah's men collected more of Solomon's Proverbs together. So during the days of King Hezekiah, his men found more of Solomon's works. And we have those included for us in chapters 25 to 29. But we also have secular sources in Proverbs as well. Both uh, this guy named Augur, which nobody knows who he is, the scholars don't know who this guy is, as well as a, a guy named King Lemuel, they are not Israelites. So these are collections of, of other people that are non-Israelite. We also aren't sure about the 30 sayings of the wise, and there's, there's another section called further sayings of the wise. We don't know where these sources come from. So it is truly a collection. But one thing we need to understand is that in the ancient Near East, wisdom literature was a major thing. You know, you went to the bookstore, you could get the the book of wisdom, 
right? And it was a very popular thing in Egypt and in the, the greater ancient Near Eastern world. And so it was a very common thing to collect wisdom sayings uh, and put them together. And what I would argue here simply is that God has sown the seed of common sense pretty broadly. I mean, think about it today. When you're trying to figure something out, what do you often do? What, you go to your phone or your computer and what do you do? You Google it, right? There's a lot you can learn by Googling. I've learned a lot of things by, by Google. You know, there's a lot of, or whatever search engine you prefer. There's a lot of common grace wisdom that God has sown around the world that we can learn from. And we do learn from. And we also get a lot of practical wisdom from it. And that's what a lot of Proverbs is. The second part of, Robert, of Proverbs is collecting this kind of source of practical wisdom. Remember, the Israelites, they didn't have Google. You know, they couldn't pull up their smartphone when they needed to figure something out. So we have these books and these collections. And that's what we have largely in Proverbs. And it's practical wisdom for daily life. So, for example, you know, some of the topics that we're given are things like hard work versus laziness. One of my favorite Proverbs. Uh, you can, I thought about it camping because they were everywhere, but ants, ants are everywhere. And one of my favorite Proverbs is, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So even the ant knows what to do. How much more should we know what to do to gather in the hard, uh, in the good season to prepare for the hard? Or uh, Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. That's basic common sense stuff. Uh, another one on hard work versus laziness. Uh, in chapter 24, a little sleep. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You know, there's teachings, common grace teachings about peace. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. You know, that's really true, whether you're a believer or not. Uh, in, in this earthly sense, I should add. How about greed? Whoever is greed for unjust gain troubles his own household. But he who hates bribes will live. Or speech. Chapter 15. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil. Right? We learn other Proverbs teach us to be slow to speak, quick to listen. We learn about true beauty. Uh, this is a very, I think, kind of a graphic one. But uh, Proverbs eleven twenty two, like a gold ring in a pig's snout, is a beautiful woman without discretion. Right? We learn about true beauty and true ugliness in Proverbs. How about discipline? Uh, chapter nineteen, verse eighteen. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Actually, you're harming your children if you don't discipline them. It's like if you don't discipline, it's like you're putting them to death. And that's true whether you're a believer or not. You should discipline your children for their good. How about prosperity? You know, by wisdom, a house is built. 
and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Now some of the sayings and proverbs are very, very strange. Uh, you know, like for example, one of the proverbs talks about the person who gives a bribe gets his way. And if if we're not thinking about what it's saying, you know, it'd be very a bad interpretation. Bad interpretation to say, well, Proverbs is telling me I should give a bribe if I need something. No, the proverbs are given for us to think, and actually, it makes it really hard for us who like to do like the read through the Bible plan because you get the proverbs. And like, it's impossible to soak in what you're reading because there's so much and you're not supposed to read wisdom literature that way. You're supposed to meditate on these little phrases. I'll give you another example, like Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26, 4 says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But then the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes. So, is, the, is there an error in the Bible as someone could foolishly argue and has? No. We're supposed to think. God wants us to be thinking people. That's why you know, Paul tells us in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. You know, it's a very bad version of Christianity that says it all should just kind of come from the heart and how you feel. We are, we are supposed to be thinking people, putting on the mind. Paul elsewhere says we have the mind of Christ. So we're to put that on and think. And as we read and think about 26.4, there's a time when you shouldn't answer a fool. And there's a time when you should. And you need to be discerning in your life to know when to speak and when to hold your tongue Proverbs 1.6 talks about <coughs> that uh, this book is going to have the sayings of the wise and their riddles. So a number of Proverbs, there are riddles. And it requires you to think. So you can't blow through it on like a reading plan. You have to sit down and think about what it is, which is very hard for us Westerners to do. Because we, you know, we like speed. We like to fly through and just cook through stuff. Come to the quick. But biblical wisdom requires thought and meditation. But again, all of these things, I would argue, are common grace kinds of things. And as I mentioned, uh, some of these sayings are things that we can find in other wisdom books outside of the Bible as well. I'll give you an example from Egypt. So there's a book called The Instructions of Amenopet. <laughs> Sorry, um, uh, our Egyptian friend is not here today to correct my teaching here, but uh, uh, we, we need Medhat here to help me out. But uh, the instructions of Amenemopet, I believe, is how it's pronounced. But in Proverbs 22, for example, we have the exhortation, do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> well, we read in uh, chapter 6 of uh Amenemopet's work, do not carry off the landmark of the boundaries of the arable land. So we're seeing some very just kind of normal things that would just be common sense wisdom in the ancient Near Eastern world. Another one that's a little more explicit in Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, we read, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. 
for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Well, there's a very similar saying in Egypt in Amenabopet's work in chapter 8, where he writes, Cast not thy heart in pursuit of riches, place not thy heart upon externals. They have made themselves wings like geese and are flown away to the heavens. Okay, so all I'm trying to say and argue here is that the second half of Proverbs is a collection of common grace wisdom that God has sown abroad. And these book of Proverbs and Amenabopet's books, they're distinct works. They're not the same. They're not copies. But simply, they were common sayings and things that everybody understood in that time, and they are there. But that is what has unfortunately led some to believe that Proverbs is simply a book of secular wisdom, and it is not. It is not. And that's going to lead us then to my second point. So, Firstly, I've shown you here that Proverbs is a collection of practical wisdom for daily life. And we see that in chapters 10 to 31. But in chapters 1 to 9, this is point number 2, we see that to be truly wise, you must be a son of the covenant. And what the book of Proverbs is showing is that this common grace wisdom is not enough. You also must be a son or daughter of Yahweh. And so Proverbs 1 to 9 is, reads very differently than the second half of the book. Proverbs 1 to 9 are extended discourses. So if you look at the outline I've given you on page 7, uh, from one, there's a prologue from chapter 1, 1 to 7, but then there's a series of exhortations on why you should embrace wisdom from the rest of chapter 1 to chapter 9, that sets a framework, a biblical theological framework, in which to view a lot of common grace sayings that will follow after it. So let's, let's unpack this idea. To be truly wise, you must be a son of the covenant. First, what does a son of the covenant mean? In chapters 1 to 9, the reader is addressed as a son. So wisdom is speaking to a personified reader that is a son or a son of wisdom. You are a student of wisdom. And we think in the ancient Near Eastern world, you had people that were students of Plato and students of Aristotle. And uh, you had disciples who would follow their rabbis. And in the case of wisdom, we are being spoken to as if we are the son, the person seeking wisdom. So it's not about being a man but it's about being the person, the man or woman, seeking wisdom. And what we will find out, I'll argue that this applies, the son of the covenant applies to sons and daughters of the Lord, or of Yahweh, as I said, which is the Lord's personal name, as I hope you know by now. I've also argued here that Proverbs is a deeply religious book. We are we read in one seven at the end of the, pro, uh, the prologue that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and that fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so the very beginning of true wisdom is not being super smart or intellectual, but it's that you fear the Lord, that you fear God 
And the personal name of God is used in verse 1-7 where you see, I've said this before, if you see the word Lord in all caps or Heron in all caps in your Norwegian Bible, that means that the word Yahweh, the personal name of the Lord, is being used in the original manuscripts. So the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, the God of Israel. And fools despise wisdom and instruction. So you can be the Dalai Lama, you can be Gandhi, you can be the smartest person in the university, the best professor, the most renowned critic on this particular field of study, and you are a fool in the eyes of the Lord if you don't start with fear in him. And so that's how it all begins. We're also given instruction as sons of the covenant in chapter 3, verse 5, uh, of, of verse 5 and 6, I would highly commend that you memorize trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths I remember my dad giving me those words when I left for college and left the home trust in the Lord son with all your heart and actually my dad's dad gave him those same words when he left uh, as well trust in the Lord with all your heart and he will make straight your paths. That is where wisdom begins. One of the unique things in Proverbs as well that is you don't find in any other wisdom literature is that we learn about two paths that are represented by two women. Two paths represented by two women. I don't know if you've noticed before in the first nine chapters, there's a lot of mention of adultery. in these. It kind of keeps coming back to it again and again. And at a surface level, it, 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 sometimes it feels a little bit repetitive. But there's something much deeper going on uh, that it's not less than adultery, but it's, it's more than just adultery between a husband and a wife. And I want to unpack this for you. So wisdom and folly are personified as two women. Uh, Two women. For example, in chapter 1, verse 20, we are told, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Connected with this woman wisdom, lady wisdom we can call her, is the path of life. We are told in chapter 3, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who laid hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. So the way of wisdom, of the following lady wisdom, is the way of life and of blessing. And then the writer of Proverbs contrasts lady wisdom with lady folly. The second path leads not to life, but to death. 
For example, in chapter 7, verse 21 and following, we read about Lady Folly. With much seductive speech, she persuades him, and her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Shoal, going down to the chambers of death. So we see these two women that play prominently, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. You follow the voice of Lady Wisdom, and that will lead to blessing and life. You follow the way of Lady Folly, and that will lead to the house of death, the chambers of death where there is a mighty throng of slain all about her. So the question is, what on earth does this mean? Why the frequent mention of adultery and of the wayward or the forbidden woman of prostitution and so forth. Why does this keep coming up in Proverbs, especially Proverbs 1 to 9? And what I want to argue for you, and then I'm going to read some commentary for you as well, is that these two paths correspond to covenant faithfulness and covenant unfaithfulness. In fact, in Israel's later day, the Lord referred to them as a whore, as a prostitute, because they were so unfaithful, they kept going to the cultic prostitutes and worshiping on the high places the false gods of the pagans that surrounded them. And this is where us as modern readers don't really understand the cultural context because in, the, in the, the original readers would have understood when they're hearing high places. In the ancient Near East, the only people that dwelled on the high places were God, were deity. And on Zion was the temple of Yahweh. And on the other high places were the Ashtaroth and the Baals and the cultic male and female prostitutes that even the Israelites would go into, that they might have fertile lives. And Proverbs is a polemic to Israel against that, saying that is the way of death. If you want to follow the way of the world, you will die. You will dwell with folly in the chambers of death. If you want to be a son or daughter of the covenant, you will be faithful to Yahweh and to his worship where Lady Wisdom lies. There's a really wonderful resource that I would commend you uh, by, uh, it's called An Introduction to the Old Testament, written by Tremper Longman and Raymond Dillard. And if you want a good summary of each book of the Bible, I would highly recommend that to you. If you didn't catch it, I can give it to you after the service. But uh, they wrote something that just 
it would just be easier for me to read it than to try to regurgitate it. But what they said on Proverbs, it said, A key to understanding the nature of wisdom in Proverbs 9 is the, lo- the location of her house on the highest point of the city. In the ancient Near East, only one person had the right to dwell on the highest point in the city, the God of that city. In Jerusalem as well, the building on the highest point was the temple on Zion. The observation confirms that we will uh, confirms what we already know about wisdom from chapter eight. She stands for God's wisdom and ultimately as a synecdoche for God Himself. On the other hand, the reader encounters folly, also personified as a woman, and also appealing to the naive young men who are walking by on the path of life. Significantly, her house too is on the highest point of the of the city. She also stands for the divine, but in this case for all the deities of the ancient Near East who stand over against Yahweh. Throughout its history, Israel was tempted to worship gods like the Babylonian Marduk or Ishtar or even more strongly the Canaanite Baal and Asherah. The reader is thus confronted with a decision. Both women are calling him to come to them and dine, to share intimacy and unpacking the metaphor to worship them. Will it be wisdom or folly? Will it be Yahweh or Baal? Thus now we clearly see the alternative before us as we walk along the path of Proverbs. That is really the path of life. We may embrace either Yahweh or another God. Which will it be? This was indeed the situation that confronted the ancient Israelite. He or she had a choice, Yahweh worship or Baalism. Many tried to synthesize the two, but the prophet sternly pointed out that compromise was equivalent to apostasy. We saw that, for example, when we went through the book of Kings. It was either Yahweh alone or nothing. So the practical situation for the Israelites was exactly that of Proverbs 9. They had a choice of two alternatives, Proverbs 1 to 9, with its climax in the last chapter, powerfully sets out that choice. So that is the choice that we are being given to. Are we going to follow the Lord or follow the way of the world, worship the gods of commerce and the gods of prosperity and the gods of power and politics and fame, whatever it may be today. You know, it was Tim Keller who wrote in a book on counterfeit gods who talked about how the worship of Marduk is prevalent in New York City, where men are sacrificing their children and their families for their careers. It's the same thing in the in the in the Old Testament. People were literally burning their children to the to the god Marduk that they might have prosperous lives, and that's that's what abortion is. It's so that you might have a better life, you might be encumbered. These gods are still alive and well today, my friends. They're alive and well today. Same problem as we turn to the New Testament. Corinth, for example, as we talked about at the Lord's Supper, they were still going to the temple, participating in the pagan rituals, and yet calling themselves Christians. And Paul was calling out. Paul even threatened, do I need to come down there with a rod and beat you 
to knock some sense into them. He said you can't participate in the cup of demons and the cup of Christ. We can't try to have it both ways, friends. We either follow Christ or we follow the world. It's one or the other. We cannot have both. The church in Colossae in Asia Minor was struggling with wisdom. And Colossians talks a lot about wisdom. What is the key to the real knowledge about God? And there were all sorts of secret knowledge groups. I mean, we have a, a Templars group just right up the street here where I parked today. You know, and they, what secret side groups are all about secret knowledge. What's the secret key to knowledge? Uh, Gnosticism and other things kind of fuel that philosophy. And what Paul argues in Colossians is that Christ is all. Christ is supreme. The whole book of Colossians is about the supremacy of Jesus Christ for knowledge and insight as the highest wisdom. And we read this in the scripture reading when he told the Colossians, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's why you can set up uh, an Einstein and you can set up one of our covenant children. And which one's wiser? It's the covenant child who fears the Lord. We're going to see on the day of judgment all these really wise and smart people over here in the wrong line. They had everything in this world, but they didn't have Christ. And they didn't know him and they didn't bow to him. And as Paul made his appeal to the Colossian church, I make my appeal to you, which will it be for you? Don't sit in the bleachers kind of looking on at what's going on in the church. Which will it be for you, Christ or the world? I pray that you would hear the voice of Lady Wisdom and that you would follow her, that you would be wedded to her. And do not go down to the depths of Shoal and be caught in the snares by the world. So which will it be, friends? That's the question I will leave with you today. Let's pray.